Two roads diverged in a yellow wood. And sorry I could not travel both and be one traveler. Long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other as just as fair and having perhaps the better claim because it was grassy and wanted wear. Oh, I kept the first for another day. Yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by. And that has made all the difference. Welcome, everybody, to the weekend. I missed being with you last weekend, but I want you to know I wasn't goofing off. I was actually in Africa on your behalf and had the opportunity to share with 76 leaders from four different countries. It was a great experience, and I loved being with these individuals. And we talked about spiritual formation, and we talked about how to practically lead the church. And I just wanted to share this with you because they want you to know how much they value and appreciate Whitdale Church, our community, and that you would give me an opportunity to go there and to share with them. And I thank you for your prayers, and I thank you for your support as we bring the hope of the gospel here, near, and far. Now this weekend, I want to start out with maybe a movie that you have seen. It is Christopher Nolan's Batman Begins, and in that movie, Rachel, who is the friend and love interest of Bruce Wayne, says something to him like this. She says, it's not who you are underneath, but what you do that defines you. Then later in the movie, Bruce Wayne transforms into Batman. He's on the top of a roof getting ready to jump off, and Rachel doesn't know who Batman really is, and she says, who are you? And he looks at her, and he says, it's not who I am underneath, but what I do that defines me. Now, I want you to think about that with me for just a moment. Is that statement, it's not who I am underneath, but what I do that defines me, is that really true? I mean, I always thought it's who you are underneath that actually informs what you do in life, that everything that comes out of us is a result of how we see ourselves inside. I want to welcome you to season two of our series from head to leb, leb being the Hebrew word for heart, your most interior part of your being. And we're talking about how God wants us to be in relationship with him, not with just all our mind, but with all of our being. We're looking at the gospel of John. We're on a journey with Jesus through the gospel of John, John being our guide, telling us how to have this heartfelt relationship with God. In season one, which I called Beginnings, we answer questions like, who is Jesus? Who are you? Who am I? What happened in this relationship with God that we have all this trouble in the world and all this trouble in our life? And how's God gone about fixing that, fixing us, helping us, healing us, giving us hope? 
Now here is season two. I want to call it invitation. Because as we begin this journey with Jesus, he says, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. But in that invitation to follow him, there are many other invitations. And one of those is an invitation to a new identity. Identity is a huge issue in our world today, in our society. If you have kids, your kids, if you are a student, you as students know what I'm talking about. Uh, those of us who are parents and adults, I mean, the whole society seems to be wrestling with, what does it mean to be a person? Who am I? Trying to figure that out and answer those questions. Let's talk a little bit about that. What is self-image? How do we come to really know who we are? Dr. David Siemens, in his book, and the book is entitled, Hope or Help for Hurting Emotions, talks about our inner being and defines what one's self-image is. And he does it this way. He says, your self-image is based on a whole system of pictures and feelings that you have put together about yourself. So Dr. David Seaman says, your self-image is based on a whole system of pictures and feelings you have put together about yourself. Unfortunately, the way we come to know ourselves is to look into the mirror of another person's eyes. And through their eyes is how we kind of come to believe who we really are. And we've talked about this before. I mean, it can be from our parents, from our peers, from society in general, from social media. There's so many inputs coming at us that lead us to believe and think about ourselves the way that we do, the way we look at ourselves. How do you feel about yourself? How do your students feel about themselves? How did you grow to understand who you really are as a result of living in this world? You know, I don't know if you ever had this experience or not, but when I was a kid, um, we would sometimes go to this place. It was in a large mall, and every once in a while, they would transform one of the empty uh, big rooms into what they call the fun house. I don't know if they still have fun houses today or not, but one of the things that you would do is you could walk in front of these uh, concave mirrors, and as you and your friends would walk by, it would change your image. It'd make you look like really fat or really skinny or really tall or really short. It'd make your ears really big or your eyes really big. And I don't know if you remember having some experience like that at a fun house, but you'd laugh at yourself and you'd laugh at each other as friends. But there's nothing funny when we start laughing at each other's inadequacies or when we start putting each other down or we start criticizing each other. That's not fun. That is, that is hurtful. And it causes hurt in our lives. And all of us, at one point or another, have felt that. We've had somebody say something about us that has been so hurtful that it, it messes up our concept of ourselves, especially if you hear it over and over and over again for the people who you desperately want to praise you, but instead they criticize you, your teachers, your parents, your coaches, neighbors, friends, pastor can be very painful in our hearts and in our lives. And so much attention is in our day is focused on one's outward image, one's outward appearance. And it's like we work so hard to get it all together on the outside. We forget that what's on the inside matters the most. 
I, I came across uh, an article that was talking about a famous plastic surgeon. Nowadays, we call them a cosmetic surgeon. And uh, his name is Dr. Uh, Maxwell Maltz, M-A-L-T-Z. And uh, he was very well known, did, you know, did really good work. And, and uh, he decided to start following up on his patients and do kind of case studies to see how the outward transformation had affected their life. And he was absolutely shocked with what he discovered. He was discouraged by it. What he found out is that when he had kind of transformed, transformed them out of being ugly ducklings to these beautiful and handsome people, I mean, like really making them like celebrity beautiful, that many of them still felt very ugly about themselves. They'd be in his office and they would hold up a mirror and they would say, see, you haven't changed anything. I still look ugly. And he realized that you can physically change how somebody looks, but if they still don't see themselves the right way. It does not change their view of themselves. When they say, look how ugly I look, they're not really talking about the outward appearance. They're talking about what feels so ugly on the inside. You may look like you have it all together on the outside. You know, we live in, in houses with well-manicured lawns and you know, everything's kind of neat and put together. We, we know how to dress the right way. Right? And, we, and we, look, you know, we look the part, but behind that facade, so oftentimes, so oftentimes, we feel so ugly inside because of how the culture and how others have taught us to view and think about ourselves. So the question becomes, well, how, how should we look at ourselves? How can we have a healthy view of ourselves? And to answer that question, I want to kind of take a little lesson from history for just, just a moment of how we have learned to kind of think about ourselves and others. You know, back in the day, the attitude, the, the mindset was that all the wrong that's in the world and, and that we struggle with, and we think about, you know, criminals, or we think about our two-year-old and their issues, their temper tantrum, is all driven by pride. That was the mindset. By a very high view of oneself. That's why we misbehave, because we think so much about ourselves. It's all about me. I'm above the law, or I'm above, you know, how everybody else should live. So I can do as I want. And so pride was the problem, and we had to clamp down on that by having rules and consequences for, you know, people who disobeyed the law, whether it's in the home or in society. And then all of a sudden, that was kind of thrown out the door. And in our modern culture, what we say is that pride is not the issue. What we say is the reason people behave badly, whether it's a two-year-old at home or a criminal on the streets, is because they have too low a view of themselves, too low a self-esteem. And what we've got to do is we've got to, we've got to build people up. We've got to let them know how, how great they are, how wonderful they are, how, how good they are. We've got to people, get people to love themselves and, and be their own truth. And somehow that's what's going to change society. The problem is that's been going on for a really long time now, and it's not getting any better. And modern society, modern culture doesn't want to listen to even its own secularist psychologists who are saying, hey folks, all this emphasis on, on building up people's low self-esteem is not changing things. I came across a study that was done by a, a psychologist, Lawrence Slater. It was based on three studies that came out in the United States. It was in the New York Times some time ago. And in essence, here's what she, she wrote. She said, 
Last year alone, there were three withering studies of self-esteem released in the United States, all of which had the same central message. People with high self-esteem pose a greater threat to those around them than people with low self-esteem, and feeling bad about yourself is not the cause of our country's biggest, most expensive social problems. But nobody wants to hear that. We're still pushing this whole idea that if we just build people up and get them to believe in themselves no matter what, that our problems are going to be solved. So if high self-esteem and low self-esteem are not the answers, what is the answer? And that's where we re-enter the book of John again. We're still in chapter 1. There's so much meat in chapter 1. I want you to listen to what John writes us. John chapter 1, verse 19. He says, This was John's testimony, talked about John the Baptist, when the Jewish leaders sent priests and temple assistants from Jerusalem to ask John, Who are you? He came right out and said, I am not the Messiah. Well, then who are you? They asked. Are you Elijah? No, he replied. Are you the prophet we are expecting? No. Then who are you? We need an answer for those who sent us. What do you have to say about yourself? Well, John replied in the words of the prophet Isaiah. He said, I am a voice shouting in the wilderness. Clear the way. The Lord's coming. Then the Pharisees who had been sent asked him, If you aren't the Messiah or Elijah or the prophet, what right do you have to baptize? John told them, I baptize with water, but right here in the crowd is someone you do not recognize. He goes on and he says this. He says, Though his ministry follows mine, I'm not even worthy to be his slave and untie the straps of his sandal." This encounter took place in Bethany, an area east of the Jordan River, where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the one I was talking about when I said, A man is coming after me who is far greater than I am, for he existed long before me. I did not recognize him as the Messiah, but I have been baptizing with water so that he might be revealed to Israel. Now, if anybody could have had an ego, it is John the Baptist. He was like the most famous man in Israel at that time. I mean, crowds were coming from all over to hear him preach. They were repenting of their sins. They were being baptized to enter into the kingdom of God. I mean, that would feed your ego, wouldn't it? Not only that, but he's like the first prophet in 400 years. Malachi being the last. Now John shows up. And he's the son of a, of a priest by the name of Zechariah. And his birth is rather miraculous because Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth were too old to have children. But an angel sent by God spoke to Zechariah in the temple and said that God was going to touch his wife's womb and that they would come together, conceive, and have a child. And they did. And John is the cousin of Jesus, the Messiah. I mean, talk about a pedigree, right? Talk about having an opportunity to kind of feel important about yourself. And yet, and yet, it is John who says, I must decrease, he must increase. I am unworthy to even 
tie, untie his, his sandals. Now, in modern terms, the way John is speaking and acting here, that's not very healthy. I mean, come on, John, you are the goat. You are the greatest of all time. Believe in yourself, man. Don't put yourself down like that. Raise yourself up. John, you are powerful. John, you are strong. John, you are, you are worthy. And you can imagine, John, if he had believed all that, might have, you know, might have introduced Jesus as his, as his ministry, ministry associate. You know, it's like, go to johnandjesus.com. Follow us on Twitter. No, he says, he must increase, I must decrease. I am unworthy. He says, he says I, am so, I am so unworthy, I can't, I shouldn't even untie his sandal, which was like the lowest job in the household. The lowest slave had that job. Remember in the upper room? Nobody wanted to wash. The disciples, none of them wanted to wash each other's feet. No one wanted to take that lowly position. So Jesus got up without complaining and lovingly cleaned their filthy, dirty feet and told them, this is how you've got to live. This is how you have to behave. John says, I am so unworthy, I don't even deserve to untie the sandals that have stepped in camel dung and donkey dung and wash his feet off. And yet you look at the life of John, and he's such a confident person. He's so courageous. He's so strong. He's so powerful. He's so sure. How can that be? How can somebody be so unworthy in their mind, in their heart, sense themselves being so unworthy, and yet, on the other hand, be so confident and, and also be so strong? How do you get to that place in your life? To answer that question, I want to look at somebody else. I'm going to look at the Apostle Paul for a few minutes. I mean, you talk about an ego, all right? Look at how Paul describes who he used to be. I want to read it to you. It comes out of Philippians chapter 3, verse 4. He says, Though I could have confidence in my own effort, if anyone could, indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew, if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. Then in verse 7, he says this. He says, I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless. And actually the Greek is skabala, which means dung, because of what Christ has done. Well, what did Christ do? Christ ambushed him, remember, in Acts chapter 9, on the way to Damascus to arrest Christians, to persecute them, have them put to death. Jesus, Jesus intervenes. And Paul's life is changed forever. And like John, like John, Paul comes to grips with his unworthiness. And, and I want to I spell that out for you because it's, it's rather profound when he talks about what's happened in his life. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, he's writing to Timothy and he says this. He says, this is a trustworthy saying and everyone should accept it. 
Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am, look what he says, I am the worst of them all, and you thought you were. <laughs> Paul says, no, I, I, I have that category. I was the worst. He says, but God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of his great patience with even, there he goes again, with even the worst of sinners. He says, then others will realize that they too can believe in him and receive eternal life. All honor and glory to God forever and ever. He is the eternal king, the unseen one who never dies. He alone is God. Amen. He alone is God. Amen. I love that passage of scripture. And I look at Paul and I see this guy who says, I am like the worst sinner ever. But then he's also this confident, courageous teacher and preacher who goes boldly into the world to share Christ. How can somebody see themselves as the worst sinner who ever lived, encounter the grace of God, have their life changed, and then live as the most, one of the most confident people that you would ever meet? How does that happen for John? How does that happen for Paul. Well, there's a, a secret that Paul gives away, and we actually looked at it, I think, over a year ago. And so this may sound a bit familiar, but believe me, it's worth thinking about again. And I want to bring it up because I've been thinking a lot about it. Tim Keller wrote this really little book uh, years and years ago. I think it was based on, on a message that he gave on the importance of self-forgetfulness. And that little book has, has become a gem for me. And I've, I've read it several times, I've listened to it, and I have found it so helpful. Let me give you the context of what we're going to talk about. We're going to read a, a, just a short little passage in, in uh, 1 Corinthians. And the context of it is that Paul is kind of having to confront the Corinthian believers because they have become factious. There are some of them that have kind of formed a little party and have said, we're superior because our teacher, our discipler was Peter. And, you know, on Peter, the, the, you know, is the rock that I'll build my church on, Jesus said. So, so, you know, we're behind Peter. We're Peter's men and women, and, and we're really spiritual. And then there were others who said, no, 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 no. Our teacher, our leader is Apollos, the great orator, the great defender of, of the faith. That, you know, this guy is skilled, he's smart, we're all about Apollos, and he's the guy. We're, we're behind him. And then others would say, no, 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 no. We are of Paul, the great apostle. It is because of Paul that we're here, and, and God has used Paul. And, and so what they would do is they would kind of criticize each of their leaders, you know, Peter or Apollos or Paul. And Paul's like, enough of it, enough of it. So what are you guys doing? It's not a popularity contest. It's not about Peter or me or Apollos. And in this part of the letter, he specifically talks about himself and Apollos. And I want you to listen to what he says because he's going to tell us the secret of having a healthy sense of who you really are. Here we go. Here's what he says. So look at Apollos and me as mere servants of Christ who have been put in charge of explaining God's mysteries. Now, a person who is put in charge as a manager must be faithful. As for me, it matters very little how I might be evaluated by you or by any human authority. 
I don't even trust my own judgment on this point. My conscience is clear, but, he says, that doesn't prove I'm right. It is the Lord himself who will examine me and decide. So don't make judgments about anyone ahead of time before the Lord returns, for he will bring our darkest secrets to light and will reveal our private motives. Then God will give to each one whatever praise is due. Maybe you remember this if you were with us last year, but it is well worth going over again because it is the key to developing a proper, healthy sense of identity and self-image. In essence, what Paul is saying to them is this. First, he's saying, I don't care what you think of me. Say that to the Corinthians. I don't care what you think of me. I don't care about the court of opinion that's out there and people's opinions about me. And then he says this. I don't care what I think of me. I don't care what I think of myself. I don't care what your opinion is of me. And I frankly don't care about my opinion of my opinion of who I am. He goes, all of that is out the door for me. I don't let it affect me. All that matters to me is how Jesus feels about me. All that matters to me is what Christ thinks about me. Well, how does Christ think about him? And how does Christ think about you and me as his followers? There's a lot of passages we could look at. But one that jumps out to me that I memorized a long, long time ago, the eighth chapter of Romans, begins this way. Paul writes, and he says, so now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ. For those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. The freedom of self-forgetfulness, says Keller. The freedom of knowing That God looks at me and sees his son in me and sees me as guiltless, as sinless, as righteous. The righteousness, the holiness of Jesus has been imputed into my life and into your life. And whether we feel it or not, it's how God sees us. It's the only way he can accept us. See, listen carefully. In our world, in our society, we perform for a verdict, right? Whether it's in sports, whether it's in music, whether it's in school, at home, our job, it doesn't matter. We perform, 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 and we hope for a good verdict. We want a good verdict so we can feel good about ourselves. Not with Jesus. Ready? With God, it's different. There's a verdict. You're forgiven. You're holy, you're pure, you're righteous. And it is out of that verdict that God makes about us that we then perform in our lives freely. Paul says, you know, I'm careful in my conscience. He says, I think I have a pure conscience, but he says, you know what? I don't even trust my conscience 
Because sometimes my conscience accuses me when it shouldn't be. I listen to what God says in his word. I listen to his spirit. I had this verdict over my life that I am approved, that I am loved, not by anything I've done, but by his grace. And I perform out of that, and I have such freedom. I don't need to impress anybody. I have such freedom because of who he is and because of what he's done for me. Now, I want you to go back to John with me for just a moment. Because remember that that phrase John said? He says, I am unworthy. We also read something else John says, which is a help to us. Look what he says. He says, I'm not even worthy to be a slave and untie the straps of a sandal. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. See what John's doing? He says, It's not about me. Look at him. He's the one that can change you. It's about Jesus. It's about who he is and what he makes us to be. Let us stop living our lives according to the court of public opinion. It'll drive you crazy. Who cares what anybody else thinks? Who cares what I think? What matters is what God thinks. And when that that gets a hold of you, it is so life-transforming. You really take on a whole new sense of identity. It's so freeing. Everybody's searching. Everybody wants to be valued. Everybody wants to know that they have meaning in their life. But when you know whose you are, that you belong to Christ, you know what he's done for you, it just frees you up. And you know what it does? It frees you up to then be used by God to let others know how much they matter and they value to God. When we can learn to forget ourselves, it allows us to put all our focus on God and all our focus on others in a healthy way, not to criticize and tear them down and point out their faults, but to talk about who they could be, the winner that they are in Christ. But we've got to be willing to forget ourselves. I came across this story that just puts a kind of an exclamation mark at the end of it. It's something I would not been aware of before, and when I came across it, I thought, man, this fits so well with what we're, what we're talking about. It happened on December 2nd, the year 2012. It involves a Spanish athlete. His name is Ivan Fernandez Anaya. And uh, he was competing in a cross-country race, and he was running in second place, but at quite a distance behind a Kenyan by the name of Abel Mutai. And uh, Abel Mutai had been the bronze medalist at the 3,000-meter steeplechase at the London Olympics. So, I mean, this guy is really good. It was funny. I actually was in Kenya where I, I, I taught, and I asked a Kenyan, I said, what, you know, I said, what's Kenya famous for? And it's right way out of his mouth, he said, running. <laughs> okay? So here you've got, this, you've got this Kenyan. He's so far ahead of the Spaniard athlete. But all of a sudden, about 30, uh, excuse me, about 10 meters before the finish line, about 30 feet, the Kenyan just pulls up and stops. 
He was confused. He thought he had already crossed the finish line. This gave an opportunity for Anya to catch up and pass him and win the race. But then all of a sudden, the Spaniard athlete, Anya, slows down and he stops. And he gets behind the Kenyan and he starts gesturing. It's not done. You got to keep moving. Keep going. And he literally kind of encourages and, and pushes, not physically, but you know, emotionally and with words, to, to keep going and to finish the race. And the Kenyan goes and the Kenyan crosses the line and the Kenyan wins the race. People are shocked. It's like, how could you do that? You could have won the race yourself. Why did you stop? Why did you, you know, the Kenyan made a mistake. Why did you take advantage of that? And here's what, here's what Fernandez Anya said. He said, I didn't deserve to win it. I did what I had to do. He was the rightful winner. He created a gap that I couldn't have closed if he hadn't made a mistake. As soon as I saw he was stopping, I knew I was not going to pass him. Now, here's what's really interesting. Um, Anayo is, is coached by um, a guy by the name of Martin Fizz. Uh, and he's coached there in Spain. And Fizz himself has been a great athlete who has clocked kilometers and kilometers of training, become Europe's marathon champion back in the 90s. When they asked him about his student, here's what Fizz said. He said, it was a very good gesture of honesty, a gesture of the kind that isn't made anymore, or rather of the kind that has never been made, a gesture that I myself would not have made. I certainly would have taken advantage of the Kenyan in order to win the race. I've got a picture here. I just wanted to share that with you. There's the Spaniard encouraging the Kenyan Cross the line. Finish the race. Don't stop short. And I love that picture. I love that figure. Pointing forward. Go. And what's hard for me is I have to ask myself, would I have done the same thing? Or would I have been like the Spaniard's coach? And said, ha, I wouldn't have stopped. I would have taken advantage of the Kenyan's mistake and won the race. What would you do? What would you do? Nah, it's not what I do that defines who I am. It's who I am in Christ that defines what I do. It's not what I do that defines who I am. It's who I am in Christ that defines what I do. And you know something? If all of us were to live that way, if Christ's church was to practice self-forgetfulness, and just focus on loving God and loving others and moving them toward the finish line. This would be a different world. It'd be a changed world. I want to challenge you as we go through this journey together to forget about yourself. You've been freed, you are loved, you are forgiven. You are so valuable. This week, I've got an assignment for you. It's a prayer that I would like to encourage you to pray that John Wesley wrote back in the 1700s. 
It's the Methodist covenant prayer. And it's really powerful. And I think it, if you'll take it to heart and practice it, you'll find it very helpful. Let me just read it to you. Here's what he said. He says, I am no longer my own, but yours, talking to God. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you, exalted for you or brought low for you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and wholeheartedly, that's the leb, yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. And now, glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are mine and I am yours. So be it. And the covenant now made be on earth. Let it be ratified in heaven. Not me, but you. Here's my life, Lord. You've done everything for me. I offer it to you. Use me. I'm good because you are great. And your grace has set me free. Let's pray. God, as we consider what you have done for us, I thank you that we don't have to be in bondage to the opinion of society or even our own warped opinions of ourselves. God, we've been forgiven. You see us as perfect. You love us perfectly. We are now freed for you to use us whatever way you want, oh God, to bring that same love and that same grace to others. So Lord, fill us, empty us, mold us, break us, whatever you want to do with us, because we're good. We're, we're whole in you. And let us, like Jesus, live our lives as a sacrifice that others may know this same truth may know the same confidence in their own hearts and in their own lives. And for that, we give you thanks in Christ's name. Amen. Listen, if you'd like to check out that prayer that I share with you from John Wesley, you can just simply go to wooddale.org slash sermon slash notes and all the notes, the message, and that prayer is there. May God bless you guys. Next weekend, we have a very special treat for you. Look forward to seeing you then.